Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Leandra Letterman, Professor of Law at the University of Indiana, Bloomington. We'll be discussing your article, The Fraud Triangle and Tax Evasion, which was recently published in the Iowa Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Leandra, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be here to discuss this article. Leandra, your article applies the fraud triangle to tax compliance. So maybe let's start with the basics. What is the fraud triangle? What are its intellectual historical origins? And what does it predict about individuals and when they'll commit occupational fraud? The fraud triangle is a three-pronged theory of fraud. That's why it's referred to as a triangle. The first prong is incentive or pressure, usually financial in nature. The second prong is opportunity or perceived opportunity to commit fraud. And the third prong is rationalization of the behavior. The origins of the fraud triangle are generally understood to lie with Donald Cressy's research on embezzlement. Coincidentally, he did his PhD research at Indiana University, and he studied what prompts people to commit embezzlement or some other breach of financial trust. So in addition, the work by his supervisor, Edwin Sutherland, on starting the field of white-collar crime is sometimes credited as providing the backdrop for what became the fraud triangle. And I should also mention that Donald Cressy never used the term fraud triangle. He focused on embezzlement, not fraud, but his three-factor test, which is different from the three factors that I mentioned that became the fraud triangle are generally credited as providing the intellectual origins of the current fraud triangle. Those factors have evolved over time, particularly after work that has been done on accounting fraud. The fraud triangle started as a theory of embezzlement uh, by Donald Cressy, and it's emerged into a, a larger theory of accounting fraud and has developed into a theory of accounting fraud over time. But I wondered if it's been applied to other areas outside of the accounting, outside of the financial misdealing and misconduct area. After all, there's a lot of opportunity for fraud out there. If I'm a student, I might cheat on an exam. If I'm a doctor, I might overbill an insurer or Medicare, or if I'm a retail banker, as we've seen, I might open fake customer accounts and so on. So what other applications does it have outside of opportunities to embezzle or opportunities to commit accounting fraud? As a theory that provides a lens on fraud, it can be applied to a really wide range of areas. And it definitely has been applied to some of those that you mentioned. So things like student plagiarism, Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, the Volkswagen emissions scandal, and many others. Accounting professor Steve Albrecht has argued that it can apply to any kind of quote-unquote compromise of a moral nature. Because the fraud triangle provides a perspective on the circumstances that may give rise to fraud or similar misconduct, it really could be used as a lens on any type of fraudulent or similar behavior. 
It's not meant to be a scientific method, but it can help provide insights about the possibility that there will be fraud in a wide range of contexts. You're a tax scholar. And so in this paper, a key contribution is using the fraud triangle as a lens for enlightening existing and competing theories on tax fraud and tax compliance that already exist in literature. Can you talk a little bit about how you position the fraud triangle within existing theories of tax compliance? How does it enlighten those theories? How does it maybe challenge some of those theories? Part of what the article does is an in-depth discussion of insights that the fraud triangle can provide for tax evasion. There have been some brief treatments on that, but I go into a lot more detail about the implications of looking at the three prongs and each of them individually for what that suggests about tax evasion. And I do that in part because although the fraud triangle is very well discussed in accounting literature, it's largely absent from the extensive legal literature on tax compliance and evasion. One of my lines of research is on tax compliance and evasion and analysis of what could help improve tax compliance. And in the legal literature and the economic literature in that area, what you tend to see is a traditional approach that's deterrence-focused, suggesting that a regime of audits and penalties would help spur compliance, and somewhat more recent literature that really looks at behavioral factors, arguing that things like norms of compliance and non-compliance and tax morale are more important than traditional deterrence. Some of the literature kind of takes on the deterrence model and has argued that it is ineffective or possibly wrong, or that it's inadequate to explain the levels of tax compliance that we actually observe in society. And so in that work over time, I've tried to correct misimpressions that audits are not effective at spurring compliance. I've argued based on synthesizing empirical studies of compliance that things like enforcement of the laws and compliance norms actually go hand in hand. Enforcement doesn't seem empirically to crowd out tax compliance. It seems to help foster compliance norms, and it seems to actually increase compliance. So with the fraud triangle, I'm using that in part as a lens on these competing strands of literature, and I'm arguing that they actually can live together, that it helps show from a theoretical perspective why you can have both deterrence and behavioral nudges pointing in the same direction and reinforcing each other rather than being competing or conflicting so that the takeaway for governments should not be, I need to stop enforcement in order to spur people to be honest, but rather that enforcement buttresses norms of compliance and helps show people that they're not chumps to comply. So looking at the fraud triangle, you actually see in its three prongs aspects that are deterrence focused and aspects that are behaviorally focused. So the first prong of the fraud triangle, again, is an incentive or pressure to commit fraud, usually a financial incentive or some kind of financial pressure. So in the tax context, 
someone could face financial pressure, such as they don't have the money to pay the, the tax that they find is due at tax time. But even without that, say someone is due for a refund, there still is a financial incentive to cheat. The person could potentially increase their tax refund by cheating in some way, failing to report some income or creating a fictitious deduction or credit, for example. So that incentive is very much an economics term. And so you can see from that aspect of the fraud triangle how that fits with deterrence. If you're the government trying to increase tax compliance that you want to try to remove the incentive to cheat or perhaps remove financial pressure by putting people into a refund posture, that kind of thing. With opportunity, the second prong of the triangle, I would argue that fits very well with the deterrence model as well, because this is about perceived opportunity to commit fraud or in this context, perceived opportunity to evade tax. And there are mechanisms that the government can use that reduce the perceived opportunity. And I think of those as enforcement type mechanisms. One of those would be structural systems that simply removes the opportunity to commit malfeasance. So I often hear use an analogy of a speed bump as a structural system that keeps people from speeding by physically changing the nature of the road. In the tax area, there are analogous mechanisms like withholding tax. So if the employer withholds tax from the employee's paycheck, the employee physically doesn't receive those funds, and that reduces the employee's opportunity to evade with respect to those taxes. That withholding is also accompanied by third-party information reporting. So the employer reports to the government, such as the IRS, how much salary was paid and what the withholding was. And the employee knows that those amounts are being reported to the government and that reduces the perceived opportunity to evade. So withholding is a tax enforcement structure and so is this third-party information reporting. And I usually analogize that information reporting to a red light camera. With a red light camera, you don't have something physically in the road keeping you from blowing through the red light, but you can see that there's a camera watching and you know that if you don't obey the red signal that the government is going to get a photo of your license plate and that prompts compliance. So to me, that falls within the deterrence rationale. Then the third factor in the fraud triangle, the third prong is rationalization. And the idea behind that is that the wrongdoer uses some kind of self-talk to, I would say, avoid cognitive dissonance. So self-talk to persuade oneself that cheating in this way or committing fraud isn't inconsistent with the idea that the fraudster is still a good person. This is a psychological aspect. It's reflecting the idea that folks who succumb to an incentive or pressure, see an opportunity to commit fraud, also deal with the psychological aspects of their behavior. They may rationalize things like everybody else is doing it too, or it's not really wrong, or I'm doing this in pursuit of a higher goal, something like that. 
So the rationalization prong reflects psychology or behavioral aspects that I think fit with some of the lines of the literature on tax compliance that focus on non-deterrence explanations for tax compliance behavior. So with respect to the third prong, rationalization, I talk in the paper about how that fits with a couple of lines of literature. And one of them is the norms literature and how rationalizations that people may use to justify noncompliance may include things like everybody else is doing it. I would be foolish not to go along. Why should I pay when other folks have tax shelters that they can use and things like that? And so to the extent that norms can be tipped to ones of compliance, for example, some governments have sent norms letters to taxpayers where they talk about the high level of voluntary compliance and voluntary payment in the community, that may make it harder for people to use rationalizations that rest on the idea that everybody else is cheating or they're just jumping on the bandwagon and going along with what everybody else is doing. And then the other line of literature I talk about in this regard relates to the idea of tax morale. Tax morale is a term that's generally used to refer to any kind of intrinsic motivation to pay taxes as opposed to extrinsic motivations that come from enforcement. Intrinsic motivation to pay taxes might be just taxpayer honesty, or it might be sourced in something like a religious commitment, for example. There's a line of work by Lars Feld and Bruno Fry, among others, who've talked about there being a psychological tax contract between taxpayers and the government. And there is the idea that Fry and other scholars have used that tax morale is largely sourced in government behavior so that if the government is democratic and fair, taxpayers, they would argue, are more inclined to comply with their taxes. And they, in, in that work, they put a lot of emphasis on tax morale and tend to question the effectiveness of deterrence. I've written a separate article actually tackling that and showing that the empirical studies generally show that deterrence does not crowd out intrinsic motivations to comply such that there would be resulting less compliance. In fact, deterrence increases reported income, etc. But there's also Joshua Rosenberg wrote a very interesting article a number of years ago on the psychology of taxes, arguing that people may be less inclined to comply with tax laws when they believe that they're unfair, but that also the reverse is true. That psychologically, people may believe tax laws are unfair because they are not complying with those laws. So you may actually have causality running in both directions. And he talks about rationalizations about people rationalizing that they quote unquote know that the tax system is unfair and that thus doesn't warrant being complied with or that they quote unquote know that the government is bad and that justifies 
their tax evasion. And that meshes really well with that third prong of the fraud triangle rationalization. Again, if you look at the three prongs of the fraud triangle, I think it just provides a really nice theoretical lens to say that more than one thing is going on with respect to tax compliance and why people comply or don't comply with the tax laws. You've got to have an opportunity that's, as the literature points out, that's pretty much tautological. If there's no opportunity to evade taxes, for example, then you probably won't end up with any tax evasion. But there, there always is some kind of opportunity, and the question is how large or small it is. And then that rationalization prong, I think, really helps emphasize the psychological aspects of the tax evasion or compliance decision as well. And to the extent that governments can help reduce the space for people to rationalize their behavior, if they're thinking about cheating, that would help increase compliance. I'd like to extend some of the ideas of this paper to current policy issues and debates, and I think this is something that you've written about as well. Recently, there have been calls, uh, including from tax experts, to expand the IRS's enforcement resources. And I think President Biden has recently proposed tens of billions of dollars of increased funding for IRS enforcement over a number of years. Based on the ideas you've talked about in this paper, do you have any predictions uh, or insights for how a plan like that would affect tax compliance in terms of uh, increasing the resources the IRS has for enforcement? Yes, I think it would help tax compliance tremendously. The increased funding is really a restoration over the past decade, the IRS has had its budget slashed by Congress, and so it has lost enormous numbers of personnel and not been able to rehire. What we've seen is decline in enforcement activity, particularly with respect to higher income taxpayers. So restoring funding or refunding the IRS would provide enormous help in increasing enforcement. And empirical studies show enforcement, having an effective enforcement regime, definitely increases tax compliance. So I'm very much in favor of adequately funding the IRS. Are there any key takeaways from this interview or from the paper that you would like our listeners to have or readers of the paper to have? The intellectual origins of the fraud triangle are an embezzlement, but it's really extended its reach far beyond that. It provides a useful lens on all kinds of fraud, including tax evasion. It helps highlight the importance to evasion of perceived opportunity to avoid. And it also points to a combination of economic factors like the incentive to cheat and psychological or behavioral aspects like rationalization. Our guest today has been Leandra Letterman, professor of law at the University of Indiana, Bloomington. We've discussed her article, The Fraud Triangle and Tax Evasion, which was recently published in the Iowa Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Leandra, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. I've really enjoyed discussing my article with you today. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.